Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. You are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. I am Tom Butler, and as always, I'm joined by Brendan Duffy. Hello. Tom Wheatley. Hello. And this week we have a special guest, Mr. Jeremy Duns. Hello. Uh, Jeremy is an author, uh, has written a number of novels and is also a journalist, a journalist and has been published uh, many different places, Times, Sunday Times, Telegraph, Guardian. And if you remember in the last episode, Casino Royale, uh, the 1967 version, we referred heavily to Jeremy's research into the scripts that were floating around for Casino Royale. And so we thought... Rather than sort of excavating that rabbit rabbit hole any further, we would have Jeremy come on himself and he could talk to us about his research directly. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Jeremy, to join us. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Before we dive into that, uh, we had an email from a listener, uh, Paul Plansic. He is uh, in Vancouver. So thank you very much, Paul, for emailing him. Um, as a thank you for being the very first emailer into the show, I've sent you a vinyl sticker with the James Bond A to Z podcast logo on it. So 
as an incentive if you are wanting to get hold of one of those then feel free to email us any feedback will be appreciated and i will try and get them out in the post to you until they run out and they are rapidly depleting (laughs) so he is a set designer or he builds sets in the film industry in vancouver um i did look him up on imdb and he's got some really great credits to his name so but he is, he talks about, uh, he says, I heard you guys talk about how hard it must be to build those elaborate sets only to tear them down and watch them go in the garbage. Try building them. So I think he's referring to one of the production designer episodes that we did. I don't know which one. But we've done like Ken Adam where the, those huge sets, volcano sets, the tanker, you know, imagine yeah. building that and having to just tear that. Yeah, and yeah. putting all the stuff in the bin. But he says, it truly does break my heart. My wife gets mad because I'll bring stuff home, signs and windows. I then start giving them away to friends and neighbours. And he says, the top of my bucket list is to have a Bond second unit come and film in Vancouver and get to work on it. And it's quite incredible to think that Bond has never filmed in Canada. Mm. Um, so fingers crossed, Paul, that they uh, do eventually come there to film Bond there. So... That's all the housekeeping out of the way. Let's crack on by talking to Jeremy. So, Jeremy, the 1967 Casino Royale. First of all, what what do you make of that film? Where, where does it? Um, what, what's your general feeling about it? <laughs> well, I listened with great interest to your your episode about it, and I mean, I think I I pretty much share share the view that you you all had about it, and I I guess the majority of people, which is. You know, it's it's got its moments. Um, it's got some amazing music. It's got, you know, Orson Welles. It's got Ursula Andress, who, you know, is beautiful. And there's lots of beautiful women in it. But it's basically pretty crap. Um, <laughs> it's just it's just a bit of a mess. It's a total mess. It's a it's a mad, bonkers, uh, frustrating uh, sort of too many cooks for the broth. Uh, kind of intensely bizarre squandering of some of the world's greatest talent and um but I, I can't remember who which of you who said it but it is the case I think I also agreed with the point that there were lots of films like that in the 60s um that don't get as much grief uh, for example what's new pussycat which was kind of Feldman's model for it in a way but lots of other films were in that vein but because this is a Bond film supposedly and it's got James Bond in I think it's it's basically kind of it sets you up for a fall because if it wasn't if it wasn't for that if the characters were called something else it would be like watching a matt helm film or watching an you know flint derek flint film or a kind of austin powers bizarre sort of 60s scenario but if you're a bond fan and i am a bond fan you're inevitably going to think what the hell's going on here and be a bit disappointed that it's not really what you're expecting so that's kind of yeah where i am with it I think the story behind the film is is the most fascinating thing about this, especially in the context and the, and the prism that we're sort of diving into the world of James Bond, sort of the, all the behind the scenes and the making of. It really yeah. is a fascinating tale. And yeah, I was just wondering what, because the research that you've done, it seems to be an area that hasn't had, it's it sort of overlooked by a lot of people who write about the Bond history. It's generally sort of ignored and shunned. And I wondered, yeah. is that really what drew you to all the research that you've done into it? And if you could just sort of outline what you've got that, that people can read as well at home about, about Casino Royale. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the reasons, it hasn't really been looked at as much as the other films. And I think, you know, one of the reasons, the main reason is what I just explained. It's basically not a very good film. And 
you know, it's a crazy story with some hugely famous people behind it, but because the end product is so disappointing and so, I mean, frustrating in a way, um, there's not the interest. So, I mean, people, historians are much more interested in, in, you know, looking at Goldfinger and looking at, you know, Thunderball and, and Dr. No and hugely iconic, great pieces of entertainment, you know, and it's not really a great piece of entertainment in the end. So I guess that that's the reason why why it hasn't kind of had that interest. That wasn't really the reason why I, I got into, you know, why I, I basically stumbled on this. Frustrating, I can't remember exactly why, but I had I had sort of been looking for quite some time at kind of weird bits of Bond and Fleming and things that I thought hadn't been kind of excavated too much. And I sort of fixated on on a thought, which was everyone presumes this has already been done. You know, everyone presumes that because James Bond is basically the most successful film franchise in history, everyone's got all the same DVDs with all the extras. They've got all the coffee table books. They've got all of the books that have been done about it. We've got the internet and Wikipedia and everything. Uh, you know, there are websites devoted to every single aspect of James Bond you could possibly imagine. There's nothing there. But then when I had sort of started to find a couple of things, mainly, like I guess the big thing at the beginning was I found a few pages of a Bond novel that was written in the 60s called Perfinance by um, a former colleague of Ian Fleming's called Geoffrey Jenkins that was discovered um, kind of after his death and he was commissioned by the Fleming estate to write um, the first Bond novel and it fell through and then it became Colonel Sun. And I found a few draft pages in that guy's papers um, thanks to the help of his son um, in South Africa. And then I thought, well, hang on. I mean, this is mentioned in lots and lots of books as a footnote, you know, uh, in passing, but nothing else. And so then I, I suppose I was more, I was looking at things more and thinking when I saw something that was interested, interesting that was mentioned, I was like, well, tell me more. So for example, there was a 60s James Bond novel called Perfine Ounce. Okay, that's great. But tell me more. What was in it? What was it about? What happened to it? So this was the same with lots of things I would read. Like That's an interesting factoid about James Bond. But where's the rest of it? You know, what there's there should be more. And I suppose coupled with basically digitization in libraries and in, in papers, in archives, this has become a little bit easier. And even then, I mean, I feel like I've been quite lazy because actually this story, the Casino Royale story, there's a huge amount that hasn't been uncovered. Um, unfortunately, because of what's happened with, with COVID and everything, I haven't been able to pursue it more. But the the place where I found the Joseph Heller stuff, which we'll get onto later, I mean, that has basically all of Feldman's papers and that's only really been opened. I mean, it was opened about a year, uh, two years before COVID. Um, and it's now closed again. But that's basically all of his stuff. I mean, you can read the finding aid online now. It's just got bucket loads of correspondence. I mean, you were talking about, you know, how did Feldman get this from um, from Gregory Ratoff? How did he buy the rights to it and everything? There's correspondence in there with, with Ratoff, with, with Maria Ratoff, which probably answers that question that it, it's a different woman. And, you know, it's all just lying there and no one's looked at it, including them. So um, there's scripts by all sorts of people. You know, you mentioned Billy Wilder. There's a Terry Southern script. No one's looked at any of this stuff. It's in papers somewhere. It's in archives somewhere. So I found I sort of stumbled across it by looking around this sort of thing. And I was searching for something or other, which I can't remember. And I came across the finding aid for the Newbury Library 
in Chicago. And I suppose I must have I must have Googled something like Casino Royale script or something like that. And it was one of the results. And it had been newly put up, you know, the finding papers had been newly digitized. They'd had Ben Hecht's papers since the day he died. You know, he, he dropped dead, as you mentioned, of a heart attack at his desk three days after finishing his material uh, for Casino Royale. And they basically went in, took all of his stuff just as it was and just put it in the library. And it, and it had taken decades for them to go through it all. And now finally they had put up a finding aid online and it, there it was. It said folders, you know, 137 to 142 or whatever they are. Uh, Casino Royale script material. So I called them up and I said, what's what on earth's going on? Ben Hex written. You've got have you got Ben Hex? you know, material for Casino Royale. And they said, yeah, we do. Uh, so, so I said, well, you know, can I see it? And they said, yeah, you can you find, sign these forms and you, you can, you can, have, you can read it. So that's basically how that happened. How did, uh, how come no one had sort of sought this before or, or since it's been put up? How come no one's, it's not been like a big media release, has there, about all this? No, I mean, I suppose, well, how I mean that's several questions. I mean how they hadn't looked at it before. I guess it's it's really a combination of what I just said. That yeah. Not that much interest in the film, and also that it they literally the archivists in the library. I mean they had, I mean he was extremely prolific, and they just had hundreds and hundreds of boxes mm. of his stuff, and the the kind of when they sorted it out, what that means is going through like a box and going oh all this stuff's related to that film. That becomes that folder. They don't yeah. read it. It's like hundreds of pages of stuff, you know, correspondence, scripts and stuff yeah. like that. So they hadn't read it. The archivist in Newbury Library had not read any of the material. She had looked at what it was to put it into the Casino Royale folder. And I asked with, I asked her and I also asked the archivist with Joseph Heller, have you read this stuff? And they both said, no one's read any of this stuff. No mm. one's read it. And I mean, why it hasn't happened since? I mean, so you mentioned uh, Tom earlier that you know I published some stuff in in the Times and and uh, some other newspapers. Um, for example, with the Ben Hecht story, I mean, I was sort of jumping up and down and going, "Oh my God!" I mean, that's like a this is a really famous scriptwriter. I mean, he wrote Notorious, he wrote Spellbound, you know, he wrote Scarface. I mean, this is like massive, and it, this is a whole bunch of stuff. They like hundreds you know it's like lots and lots of material by him writing James Bond and so I called lots of newspapers I called lots of magazines I called Empire I called The Guardian I called all sorts of people I said I want to write about this you know how much I've got the stuff you know how much can you give me how much space The Guardian if I recall correctly after a lot of faffing around wanted to give me 250 words to write about it (laughs) and I said I can't I can't write about this in 250 words that's like a you know, that's a nib and that's a news in brief. This is like a proper serious thing. And eventually I did get it in the Sunday Telegraph and it was a pretty long article and they made it, you know, a fairly big deal about it at the time. But nevertheless, it's it's the Sunday Telegraph. It's not James Bond magazine. <laughs> it's not, they're not, you know, it's for everyone to read over breakfast. They're not going to give you 18 pages in their magazine. So, um, and you know, after a couple of weeks, it had was fish and chip wrapper. So that's why I originally published, um, you know, I published a longer version of that as a as an ebook called Rogue Royale. And coming back very belatedly to what Tom asked me before, all of this stuff I've now put on my website for free, and it will be permanently free. And you can read it either as individual uh, kind of blog post style uh, newspaper articles, or you can download these as PDFs or uh, ebook. 
and there's a there's an awful lot of it i would say i mean the the, the stuff on hecht it's uh, it's a very 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 long article um but i guess you know a combination of factors but i mean one of you mentioned the idea of you know having a graphic novel or something of this material i think that would be a fantastic way to present it i guess it comes down to it's difficult to get this out for to, for people to understand it i was very pleased actually when the original sunday telegraph article came out that Roger Ebert, who was still alive at the time, tweeted about it and said, this is unbelievable. Someone's found Ben Hecht's material for Casino Royale. And I sort of hoped with that tweet, which, you know, got quite a lot of retweets, that someone might sort of perk up and say, this is unbelievable. Like, let's, you know, someone needs to publish this. And, you know, there's also all those forms I had to fill in. I, you know, there's a limit to the fair use. You know, there's a limit to how much I can give out myself i don't have the rights to this material and i imagine that it must be that eon has the rights because yeah, i was going to ask where does the it? copyright lie so so eon has uh, the rights to all of the all of the casino royale scripts now is that is that what you're saying well i mean i haven't i haven't you know consulted anyone with it but eon could only make the daniel craig version because they finally got the rights back so i presume that means that any previous uh, attempts um are their property and i guess they're not particularly interested in graphic novels of Charles Feldman's, you know, original idea. You know, they've got other things on their mind, like making No Time to Die and the sequels to that. So, I mean, I, I guess it is possible. I would, ho- I would hope that this would be something, all of this material, I would hope that at some point James Bond fans around the world can read themselves. So this is like a kind of exploratory, these are just my first thoughts on this stuff because I'm the first person who happened by fluke to to get to it I do know some other people some Bond fans who for example live near Chicago they've gone and looked at the Ben Hecht stuff the Charles Feldman's the uh, Joseph Heller stuff is, is a bit different because that library was closed uh, for decades um, and it was only very briefly open and it was quite tricky to get to but hopefully you know once all this pandemic nonsense is over yeah I think it would be fantastic to to have some kind of I don't know, annotated version of this material or, you know, or something, because it's a fascinating story how it all came about. But for me, the material itself is just phenomenal. And that's, mm. you know, worth reading. That's like a James Bond, new James Bond story. You know? It sounds like there's a documentary in it. Yeah. I think that'd be a phenomenal thing for not even just Bond fans, I think, for anyone. That's an amazing yeah. story behind it. Tell us about yeah. the Ben Hecht script, because when you write about it, it sounds yeah. absolutely thrilling. And it feels yeah. much more in the vein of a Connery film than yeah. what we what we ended up seeing. I mean, there are bits of it. I mean, it's. I mean, one of the issues with this is it's not a straightforward start to finish. What's completed is just a whole script, finalized script. So he was just on the verge of saying, you know, his last letter, as you mentioned in your last podcast, was basically, "I'm nearly there. Give me until next week." we'll have all the sort of final stuff going. And then, of course, from then on, there would have been loads and loads of work done between then and making a film. So it's not like a finished shooting script. There's overlapping stuff. There's, you know, all sorts of, you know, things. It's not from start to finish. And there are bits in it that are quite mad, quite bonkers, don't really work. There's a sort of pre-title sequence that kind of messes around with uh, UN diplomats who are involved in paedophilia and that's how they're being kind of uh, blackmailed by by Schieffer, as he's called in the in the script. I'm not sure even in, you know, 1964, 1965, that would quite have flown. Um, there's a weird mud wrestling scene where Bond 
uh, is in Hamburg and he disguises himself in a gay bar uh, as a mud wrestler, uh, which is very kind of Roger Moore before Roger Moore. And there's a hypnotist who can, who's helping Shifra, a sort of psychic kind of guy who can actually read cards. He can read people's minds, um, like genuinely read people's minds. So that's a kind of, I suppose, solitaire, but taken to a, like there's some ambiguity with solitaire. You're not sure if you can or not. In this, like he can. So again, there's like an element of supernatural. So I, I would highlight those three things as being ideas that I'm not sure really do work. But the ideas that do work, which is the majority of them, are just extraordinary. It's very, very similar to Notorious in tone and in feel. And it's very cool. It's a very cool film. The dialogue absolutely reads like Connery. It's got all of the... It's got action. It's got suspense. Um, it's sexy. It's also got a kind of psychological depth that I don't think we really saw until until Daniel Craig came along with his adaptation of it. So I think it is, you know, that sounds sort of in a way like, well, I would say that because, you know, I found it or something. But this is Ben Hecht. So, so you know, this guy knew what he was doing. He really knew how to write a script. And it, it really is sort of amazing to read some of this stuff and think, this is actually Ben Hex sitting down writing a, writing a James Bond script. And they could actually have done it. Feldman could actually have, have done this. He could even have taken a million, you know, given Connery a million dollars and done it. And if you start imagining it in those way, in that way, it's just, it would have completely changed cinematic history because James Bond would now be seen, I think, very much more in the vein of how we see Alfred Hitchcock films. You know, that's what could have happened, you know, rather than how we do see them, which is great but it could have totally turned everything on it. You know, it could have been a complete disaster as well. But the potential in it is just phenomenal. So I th- I think it's a very, very exciting uh, script. And there's a, a huge amount of material in it that I think could have made a fantastic Bond film. There's more, more than enough for a Bond film in there. And so let's just take it back. How much do you know about the Gregory Ratoff's attempts to make Casino Royale? Because again, there's not much written about where he got to. There's a hint that maybe... Fleming wrote a draft? Yeah, I mean, I went through... I mean, I interviewed Lorenzo Semple Jr. about it. And um, basically, I mean, he was fairly old at that time. And he said... I mean, his take on it was that Ratoff was, had a massive gambling problem. And um, he was a kind of larger-than-life guy. And he was a kind of playboy figure. And he was sort of using it... And he was mates, a very, very close friend with uh, Feldman. And Feldman was basically kind of bankrolling his gambling. And this was a kind of, um, they went off on a jolly, basically, around France and the Riviera, scouting, you know, for Casino Royale. And he took a very young Lorenzo Semple Jr. with him. But essentially, according to him, it wasn't really much work. It was just a lot of casinos. <laughs> and and he didn't really sound like it was something that he really, you know, was particularly committed to. because and Which isn't strange. I mean, we're coming at it from you know, now, knowing what James Bond is, how would he know that this, you know, relatively unknown, you know, British thriller was going to change, you know, everything in cinema? How would he know that? So it was just another project. It was just another thing for him. And he was spending a few months around. Uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr. didn't recall writing himself anything but sort of a few bits and bobs. I don't think, I don't think he wrote, he didn't, he didn't remember writing a full script. He was sort of trying to prove himself and come up with ideas. They had this kind of Susan Hayward idea, and you know, Bond would be female and stuff. But it sounded more like a jolly. However, I did find in newspaper archives um, 
that, you know, he had put quite a lot into motion. He planned to film in Estoril in Portugal. So that means that he must have had some kind of clue about the origins of the book. Um, and there was one article in which they, they mentioned that Fleming had written a synopsis, but they were going to get a noted scenarist instead. So they were kind of like not going to use the thing that Fleming had written. So there was some treatment written by Fleming, but they weren't going to use it. A lot of the problem with these kind of newspaper articles from the time is a lot of them are just basically puffery. I mean, they're just trying to puff up their projects and they're just trying to get the showbiz colonists just to say, you know, just to mention their stuff. Um, how much of it ever comes true, you don't know. However, I think that's an interesting tweak because it would be something you might want to puff your film by saying, and the guy who wrote it has written the script. But you're not really puffing it by going, and the guy wrote it's written some kind of treatment, which we're not going to use. Like, that's not something you'd really invent. Uh, it doesn't really help you yeah. in any way. I mean, you could do, but it's not, it's a bit of an odd one. So that suggests to me that possibly, like, my spidey sense goes a little bit when I read that and think possibly, possibly there might be, you know, might be somewhere that Fleming wrote a treatment for it. But we, there's no sign of it. In the papers, in Hex papers, there is, as you mentioned, this um, kind of gangster version of it, you know, Lucky Fortunato, and there's no name written on it. But I did have a copy of a letter or a telegram that Feldman had sent to Hecht, to Ben Hecht, saying, hi, Ben, can you, can you read this stuff and get back to me? So I think that was a kind of, that might have been, for example, Lorenzo Semple's stuff uh, or some other script writer. So it reads like an early thing that he's sent and said, can you can you have a look at that, and then see what you can do. And again, it was a gangster thing, and Ben Hecht had written Scarface, so maybe that's why he thought of him. I don't know, but and it could also have been written by Hecht. I don't know, but it's it's very different from all the other stuff. And what's also in the material is kind of notes by Hecht, where he starts, and those are dated, and then they slowly develop into the script. So it doesn't look to me like the Lucky Fortunato thing actually is by him, because if it is, he started again in a completely different direction. Uh, it's interesting that um, that Feldman was bankrolling Ratoff. And so then yeah. the, there's a sense then that, that when he when he died, that the rights came to him as sort of a payment towards his bankrolling, I guess. Is that is that the general I mean, I assumption? Think I'm sort of going on sort of, you know, secondhand stuff and I'm not sure how good Lorenzo's memory was of all of this because it was, you know, been a long time ago as a young man. But yeah, I think there was a sense of something along those lines. I think there was a kind of group of um, a group of these guys who were who were buddies in Hollywood. And I think Howard Hawks was also friends with Charles Feldman. Um, but the impression I got was they were kind of gambling buddies and kind of playboys and that yeah that they were all kind of i mean as you said charlie charlie feldman had this thing where he sort of put together packages so everything would be like okay but i'll get this actor and this director and i'll put them all together and i represent all of them in this film and so this was that gregory ratoff was one of his clients as well so it was kind of like you do this and i'll put it all together kind of thing uh, another thing that lorenzo sempre told me was you know that um gregory knew where all the bur- where all the bodies were buried you know, so um, they were up to all sorts of stuff. I mean, Charlie Feldman was a very dapper kind of guy who liked to 
you know, presented himself as the Jewish Clark Gable. By today's standards, he was a kind of, uh, there were very strong elements of a Harvey Weinstein figure here. I mean, the casting couch was really existed and he went through lots and lots of beautiful women. So these guys, I mean, they were rogues and they were all rogues together and Gregory Ratoff was one of them. So there was a protective relationship. He was helping them out. But, you know, sure, if he if he had managed to come back with some great script uh, for a project set in the Riviera with a spy, you know, maybe he would have directed it and maybe Ben Hecht would have written a script as well and maybe he would have got in some of the other people. You know, it, they were always hatching these sorts of plans. Some of them came through, some of them didn't. But it is all a bit unclear and I guess a lot of these questions will be cleared up uh, when eventually we can get into the Feldman Library again. And what I would say is, I mean, everything I'm saying now, I'm just sort of trying to do give my best guess on what I do know. However, when I wrote the Ben Hecht stuff, I had no idea about the Joseph Heller stuff. So I knew that Joseph Heller was another name. He'd written something. Yeah, I, I had no idea the extent of Joseph Heller's contribution while I was writing about the Ben Hecht contribution. And I had presumed that it was a few one-liners that he would have written here or there, perhaps. And in the event, it's over 100 pages are in there. So it was much more extensive than I thought. So I think that the complexion of exactly how this was put together will probably be exceptionally complicated and will only really be revealed by someone, and it might be me, but it could easily be someone else, going through for a very long time all of those papers and all of the correspondence and you know all of the invoices and everything. Because, I mean, the reason the film, the finished film, such a mess is precisely because, you know, of the conglomeration of so many different talents. So it just kind of one thing piled on another. So to unravel all of that is quite a huge task, I think. Well, one of the, I guess from reading your thing, um, your, your articles, the, the idea of Bond being replaced, is yeah. that, that come from a, a hex script? Yes, that, that, that seems to... I mean, again, I'm, I, I, again, I'm speculating, but it's, it seems to me... That um, so there's that's one of those things where there's overlapping scenes. So there's one scene in an in M's office where, which is a later scene. I mean, it's written later where it's just a straightforward James Bond M scene. But there was something that he wrote a little bit before that where it's an American agent who is told, you know, James Bond's dead and you are taking on his mantle and you have to go to the right to the right tailor. You have to learn how to drink his drink and we're going to confuse the enemy this way and. Then, as I say, this changed back to the other thing later on. And so I'm just speculating, perhaps this might have been, you know, he was thinking of trying to get Connery. He couldn't get Connery. What do I do if I can't get Connery? You know, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? And um, I mean, I don't know if you've read the the latest um, sort of more detailed version that, that I have of the, um, of the, of the Heller thing. But I mean, there's some sort of crazy um, stuff I found in, in interviews with uh, Feldman from around the time uh, and, and with Connery. So there's this thing where Connery's interviewed in, let me just check, 1960, 1965 in the Los Angeles Times. And um, he's very, very annoyed um, with, you know, Broccoli and, and uh, Saltzman. He's not talking to them. Um, but he's asked about Feldman's project and he says, what one could do is open with a shot past the back of Bond's head into M's face. M is saying, James, for this assignment, I'm afraid no simple disguise must do. I must ask you to undergo massive plastic surgery, cut to an operating room shot, cut to the bandages being removed, and voila, there's whoever the blazers is going to do the part. 
So this is very surreal, I think. This is Sean Connery <laughs> giving his own ideas of how to replace himself um, in another film. And and also there's this thing where Feldman gave an interview where he basically this idea, he claimed, Feldman claimed, contradicting what I've just said about Hecht, that he came up with this idea because he was so worried about people um, stealing the ideas. Uh, he was totally paranoid about people stealing the ideas from this film, particularly TV, because they could get it on much, much faster than him. And in fact... Um, it seems in like Flint took a film, took took an idea that they wanted to have and came out with it earlier. But anyway, he says that he was so sort of plagued by this idea of people kind of, you know, nicking the ideas that he started having nightmares about about all of this. And he had a nightmare. Sorry, let me just find the quote. Um, it's absolutely. Yeah, I had a nightmare in color on the big screen. Everyone was called James Bond. Young men, old men, women, children. Even the animals, they were all James Bond. And then, then he says he woke up screaming, but he had the idea of how to make his film, the first of all the 007 spy stories written by the late Ian Fleming, multiple Bonds. So that's how he claims he you came up with the idea. Don't make a film based on your nightmare. <laughs> no. I, and he said it in a couple of interviews. He said it's based on, an, it came, so there's another one, it came to me in a nightmare in which I realised the plagiarists were already plucking those James Bond stories yet to be filmed. So I think... Yeah, that's quite weird. But I suspect that the, the the genesis of it is actually in in those hex scenes. And I think the reason for those scenes would probably have been Charlie Feldman going, can you write something just in case we can't get Sean Connery or, you know, we're going to need to have a way of explaining this. And it's it's an American agent who's been in Jamaica before. And he's kind of, you know, a suave kind of guy, but he's not James Bond. He's just taking this on as a name. So that's the origin of that whole that whole idea, I guess. Either that or Charlie Feldman's nightmares. Crazy that he was paranoid about other people stealing his ideas when he was basically developing a film that other people were already making successfully. Well, he had convinced himself by this stage, actually, that, I mean, if you think of Dr. No, if you think of the introduction of Sean Connery, it's in a casino. That's not in the book. And where have they got that from? They've basically... They're trying to, they're adapting that novel, but they're trying to instill the tone, the style, the kind of feeling of all of the Fleming novels that they have into, you know, it's a mix of an adaptation of the novel and bits and pieces from James, you know, it's a James Bond thing. And so Feldman had convinced himself that um, they would, they had actually stolen stuff from Casino Royale in the films they'd already made. So he, he thought that they basically already plagiarised him because he had the rights to the first book. So he says, um, this is another interview, when we started off, we had six strikes against us. All the gimmicks in the novel Casino Royale had been used without permission in the other Bond pictures. We could sue if we wanted to. This is him in the filming of Casino Royale 67 at the height of his paranoia, where he's you know put in so much money into it. Um, so he went basically quite mad, I think. Um, that's That's what happened, I think. Did you want to talk about the tuxedo bit, uh, Brendan? I know you were talking about that earlier. Yeah, that's something I'd heard you speak about uh, before, uh, about the the tuxedo hidden under the wetsuit. That's been, oh, that right. being based on a, on a true story. Yeah, so that's another piece of research that I had found. Um, so I was, writing, I was writing a thriller and um, I had a scene set in the Second World War and I had a British secret agent who is my main character and I wanted him to um, infiltrate um, a coastline. 
and I suppose I was in some way influenced by uh, by Goldfinger there. Um, but I was thinking, you know, how did they actually do it? How did SOE and MI6 and all these people, how did they do it in, in the Second World War? So I looked at my kind of research library. I found a, a book by MRD Foote, The Official History of SOE. And I, you know, read it up again on, you know, seaplanes and all this kind of stuff. And then he had this bit in it about um, a real operation that um, SOE had done during the war where they had um, some young members of the Dutch resistance. Essentially, they had just escaped the Netherlands um, just as the Nazis were invading, come to London. They had got in a boat and got to London. And they were very keen. They were like 19, 20. And there was a resistance network in Holland and they, they went to everyone and they said, we want to get back uh, and help. Um, you know, provide the resistance with weapons, with, you know, radio sets and all that stuff. And everyone was very reluctant to help them. And eventually they managed to, um, in fact, it was MI6 who eventually they they got hold of. And um, they came up with this plan where they said, we know from the town that we're from uh, on the coast, Hueveningen, uh, that the Nazis have taken this over as um, they've, they've made it their coastal defence headquarters. And I think they were using a hotel. They had taken over a hotel. And every Friday night, they use this hotel for a massive party. They, they, you know, they all get drunk and they have basically a hugely glamorous party. And what if we, uh, you know, take a, a motorboat in and um, one of us is wearing dry suit and underneath the dry suit we have dinner clothes on and the other one helps us out and then we wade into the into the onto the beach and you know splash some brandy over 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 the guy so that he smells drunk and then he sort of staggers ashore and then just mingles uh with the with the nazis um Amazing. who who are getting drunk it's yeah. almost based that sort of outrageous image of Bond stripping off the wetsuit and the tuxedo beneath, and it kind of someone mm-hmm. had thought about it already and done it, or had thought about doing it for real. Yeah, I mean, they suggested doing it. It's a completely insane idea. It was uh, 1941, I think, um, and they did it. And MI6 made a, a dry suit, and um, they they had a micro dot, kind of miniaturized. I don't think it was a micro dot in those days, but a very 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 small message that they were going to that was from Qu- the queen of the netherlands who was in exile in london that he was he was plan you know he had to give to people to kind of um, persuade them to come back some of them she wanted to come back to join her government and mi6 put this in the collar of his of his shirt and they they created this experimental dry suit and he had black tie underneath and they did it and they they managed to do this whole thing now if you read the article i wrote about it the black tie spy you'll see that it was a lot less glamorous um, then, then in Goldfinger, things you know went wrong. People got betrayed, but the fact is, this guy Peter Tazla, young guy, actually did this. He actually came off a motorboat, waded waded ashore, you know, stripped off his dry suit as they were then, and was in a, you know, it was in black tie, went ashore, and got to the resistance. So I thought when I read this, this can't, it can't be a coincidence because it's too. That's too bonkers an idea um, to have been thought up independently beforehand. Um, so how did it get in there? I managed to interview Guy Hamilton. Can't have been too long before he died. I just called. I managed to find his number online uh, in Mallorca and called him, and he answered the phone. Quite bizarre. I literally found. I literally Googled and found <laughs> a number. I, I found a number That's for great. Guy Hamilton online in Mallorca, a telephone number, and I I called it, and he picked up. 
Yeah. And I asked him about it and he said, well, and he gave me a completely mad answer, which was actually during the war, I was doing that kind of stuff, but I never did it with people in tuxedos. They were always dressed as farmers. I was like, what? Um, <laughs> did, he, did he sound like he got those phone calls all the time? And he's like, oh, no, okay, no, yeah. no, no. He sounded like he had basically just come in for his evening gin and tonic and the you know, phone had called and he was on his terrace or somewhere. And some person claiming to be a journalist from somewhere or other had, you know, called him up. I mean, sometimes I would say sometimes it really is worth just doing that because you never know uh, who you, you know. I mean, it wasn't that wasn't the answer. But I mean, it was quite helpful to have interviewed Guy Hamilton. For example, you know, that story was originally published in the Daily Telegraph. I mean, I'd actually interviewed and got quotes from the director of Goldfinger about it. I mean, most of the people involved in this obviously had died. So. I could sort of strike that off my list and also that he yeah. he was literally you know in you know motor torpedo boats during the war during the second world war so it kind of gives a different complexion to mm. even though he had no idea where it had come from that it wouldn't have seemed such a mad idea to him you know when he when he was filming it because you know he was used to secret agents going ashore but not in this yeah. particular way and my eventual conclusion was that Paul Dane who had written this bit in the script and had been one of SOE's uh, chief instructors and had written the training manual for secret agents, uh, must have heard about it in the sort of tight-knit uh, scene that British intelligence was. Um, in the book in, uh, that I had found this in, um, it had said that SOE had really greatly admired and envied the operation that MI6 had done, and Paul Dane was very senior in SOE. So my conclusion was that it was a kind of tribute to that operation that he had kind of glammed up and, and made sexier and cooler and, but even then, even in his in his drafts, it was quite a lot. You know, it was not as as you know, it's not a seagull on his head. It's a it's a dead dog on his head, and so it's a bit grittier. But yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's quite extraordinary that um, someone actually did do that. Yeah, mm. yeah, that ridiculous amount of information you've got on these things. It's um, I mean, we could probably talk for hours about all of these areas. I suppose just to, just to round off that that area of it, what. Would you? What do you want to do? Are you hoping to find out loads more about this over over the coming months and years? And 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 how would you want to use all this information um, in the future? Um, I don't really know. I mean, I think I've never had a plan. Uh, I've just sort of followed, you know, stuff. Um, most of it has happened, kind of, you know, like one thing has led to another. Um, and then the more you kind of know, the the easier it sort of becomes to kind of follow the follow the trails, I guess. There's around 200,000 words um, of journalism on my website um, that, that, that can be read. So it's already there's a kind of product, if you like, there's some there's some kind of a result of it. But I certainly think for Casino Royale, the 1967 version, or I mean, really, you know, you could start calling it the 1955 version or something. I mean, it, it, it's such a long project. But that for that version of Casino Royale, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, there's a huge, huge amount that has not you know, just been looked at. No one's looked, as far as I know, no one's looked at Terry Southern or Billy Wilder's scripts. Um, I still don't really understand exactly what happened with Joseph Heller's scripts. Um, it, there's a kind of sudden turn uh, at some point where the material becomes quite a lot crazier because at the beginning it was not that crazy. It was fairly close to Hecht uh, in tone and fairly close to the Connery, Connery stuff. So I think, you know, once this is over, um, I would very, very much like to investigate that more. But it's a, that's a huge job. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. But I'm just always, I suppose, keeping my eyes and ears open. And, you know, if something 
turns up. I mean, most of the stuff I've done is probably more about the literary James Bond. Actually, it's a lot more about Fleming um, than the film stuff. I'm not. I'm not a, really a specialist in that kind of thing, and it sort of happened that way. Um, I yeah. would very much. I. I would. I think it would be great if a lot of this material were published. I think the Hecht material and the Heller material. I mean, these are two. I mean, Heller wrote an iconic novel hecht is one of the greatest script writers of our you know the age yeah. i think it it would be a shame if this is never read by bond fans i think this this stuff this material should all be available to bond fans i don't know how i can help or go about with that but yeah. i'm I, i'm sort of i've sort of haven't thought about it before but i think now you know in this kind of limbo situation we are that might well be something that i pursue and try to persuade people like can't we have like a huge you know annotated version of this you know, some isn't there some way this can come out of the library archives that, that so that people yeah. can actually read well, it? The, everyone's always after more more kind of stories about Bond and well stories based on 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 the original character and everything. Do you think any of these stories that Hector's written might one day be turned into an actual film because it just becomes a classic piece of writing that could be used? I don't know. I mean, I think that becomes tricky because then I mean that's out of my hands. But I guess that's that's the Eon that's Eon's thing. But I mean, you know, it was in was it Inspector that they used Kingsley Amis that That's they had right. a, a credit, a yeah, credit right. for Colonel Sun? I mean, who would have thought, you know, because people were saying that for years, fans were like, yeah, but why haven't they ever, you know, taken anything from Colonel Sun? That would be great. The torture scene. And, you know, then they just did. They just took, yeah. there's actual di- there's actual verbatim dialogue from Colonel Sun. So I looked this up because the, the original article I was going to write was, um, you know, famous writers uh, who have had uh, sort of run-ins with Bond. That's how I got onto the Joseph Heller thing. And, you know, I looked that up and they, they literally used verbatim text. Uh, some, of, some of that scene is verbatim from Colonel Sun, some of the dialogue. And who would have thought they would ever have done that? You would never have guessed or predicted they would have done that. There's loads, there's loads of ideas. I mean, there's loads of stuff in, in the Hecht material, particularly... Uh, lots of great uh, one-liners lots of uh, it's just a lot of fantastic stuff and I mean yeah Anthony Horowitz um, you know recently I think in two of in both of the novels he has bits from unpublished Ian Fleming stories I I don't think it would be impossible for Barbara Broccoli to be interviewed on a red carpet somewhere and say well you know some of this dialogue actually comes straight from you know the Shakespeare of Hollywood Ben Hecht I mean that's a pretty good pedigree to have Mm. um so i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's impossible but that's nothing you know that's just me hoping i guess i mean that's nothing yeah. that i can i can um well it's, it's almost become the, the ben heck stuff is almost bond legend anyway now much like fleming's original material is and i think most bond fans would be really excited to to see some of it actually come to fruition yeah and i i mean that's interesting to hear because i haven't i haven't got a sense of that i mean i don't know how much how many people how many people know about it at all but um and i don't really i mean a couple of people have asked me you know what, what that sort of question that you said well, what do you intend to do with it it's like it's not mine you know but i don't yeah. know i don't know really what the best way i mean if you have any ideas <laughs> i mean you guys are all, you guys are kind of more film connected than me so maybe you maybe you know better than i do but i don't really know where to start with that i mean apart from just as a fan just thinking everyone should be able to read this mm-hmm. um how practically speaking that can happen i don't know because for both of them, I did have to sign quite a lot of forms, you know, uh, yeah. um, saying that I wouldn't, you know, give away the material and all that kind of thing. So I guess as soon as it becomes that it's actually readable by everyone, then Eon, you know, it's not going to get to that stage without Eon uh, becoming yeah. involved. And I, I just don't know what their view of it would be. 
So just circling back just quickly before we do wrap up, the, the, the Hella stuff is less complete from what you've seen than the Hex stuff. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's less, there's less of it. Um, and, uh, or shall I say there's less of it that I saw, you know, there might be, um, again, it's a similar thing that basically, um, that stuff hasn't been looked at since he died. Basically his family just after he died, just gave it all, you know, and there's so, there's so much stuff in the files that it, it really wouldn't surprise me at all if there was other hella stuff, if, particularly correspondence and things. I mean, even in the stuff I found, there were like five or six pages of notes at the beginning where he just like had kind of various ideas, which themselves are not forming any part of a script, but like have enormous like potential to do stuff with. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's more bitty, I would say. Um, and some of it's more recognizable though because some of it you can kind of i don't know if you remember from the actual finished film there's this scene with Jacqueline Bisset who's playing i think she's called Miss Goodthighs or something and i think it might be the scene where Peter Sellers infamously pulled a gun on her um but there's yes. a whole thing yeah. there's a whole yeah. thing where she sort of tries to where she comes in and she sort of tries to seduce him and stuff and some of that uh you see uh, that's actually you can trace that from Hecht uh, it's, should, the character's called something completely different but you can trace some of the dialogue it's still traces of it from Hecht and then in Hella um, and then you know eventually it just someone says well why don't we call her Miss Goodthighs that'll be hilarious and then they you know it gets more and more silly until you have what it is but there are several scenes the the um, the hunting scene with the with the beaters um, that is in the finished film where which ends with David Niven with his trousers around, around his ankles that's like a really tense scene in, in Joseph Heller's material uh, there's a really tense and great Rolls Royce. Uh, there's a, there's a car chase uh, through the centre of Marseille, which is great. I mean, it, it really fantastic scene, um, which I don't think has ever you know come up come up anywhere. Um, so there's lots and lots and lots of stuff. But as I say, it probably takes. I mean, I was like a kind of kid in a candy store, so it it will take a lot of. There, there's thousands of pages, so it will take a lot of work. I think. So Jeremy, uh, there is you did record uh, some audio talking about some of the footage, uh, some of the script that you have seen, and it's it's called Close yeah. Reading, and people can find that on Spotify and wherever they get their podcasts, right? Yes, yeah, that's uh, it was done through I think Acast, so yeah, it went on Spotify, but there you can Google Close Reading and my name, and it should come up. That's me talking about the pre-title sequence that Joseph Heller came up with, and that is. I mean, we were just talking about the Goldfinger pre-titles and the kind of historic origins of it. And this is also very influenced by, uh, it's very much in the vein of Goldfinger. They had been to sit, Joseph Heller had written this with a childhood friend, George Mandel, who he brought in, who's a novelist and I think playwright. Um, and they basically kind of chewed the fat together. And they, they came up with this and they went to see Goldfinger to kind of see like, what is it we're meant to be doing here? And it's very obviously influenced by Goldfinger. However, it's got nothing to do with Goldfinger. I mean, like the pre-titles in Goldfinger, it's nothing to do with the rest of the film. It has no no, no precedent in um, Ben Hecht's material, no precedent in the novel. So they've come up with it from scratch. It's completely freestanding. So it's like a mini James Bond adventure, just as the Goldfinger title sequence is. It takes place, um, on, I think it's meant to be Cuba, and it's at night and it's on a coastline. But it's just a precision piece of writing because it just ticks 
so many things. It's a very, very clever little scene where James Bond has to do all sorts of different things uh, to circle back to uh, a beautiful woman who's waiting for him in his hotel room, who's getting ready in the in the bathroom and says she'll be five minutes. And he does this whole thing in exactly five minutes. And it's all sorts of stuff he does. And it's very slick. It's very suave. It totally reads like Connery would do it. And it's just a magnificent little little thing that, I mean, just by pure chance, I happened to come across one day. And I don't really understand how no one has kind of, you know, gone through this stuff before, but they just haven't. So, I mean, that's a, that, that alone, I think, is worth the price of admission, you know, that, that somehow that should be published. Also, Heller wrote a fantastic article about the whole experience, basically a kind of Catch-22 type article. It's rather a long article entirely kind of taking the piss out of Feldman's paranoia and just the whole experience of trying to write this and why why it didn't work and um, it's very very funny um, so there's there's a lot of stuff I think still to uncover but as we sort of discussed before I think what gets in a way is the finished film you know? so people immediately kind of you know their eyes glaze over a little bit and they think well you know do I really want to know about Casino Royale 67 but I think the the elements that went there you know the development of it the the things that made it up made you know created that eventual nightmare nightmarish literally mess that Feldman came up with I think are individually not only fascinating but a lot of them it's just like really really good writing well I think it's been really enlightening having you uh, Jeremy on just thinking it's in 2026 it'll be the 20th anniversary of Casino Royale the 2006 version it would be True. the perfect time for them to gather all this material together. And if True. not... What's, to, what's 20... 2023? That must be an anniversary of the novel being published. That's um, my math yeah. not very good. Yeah, no, you're right, because it's 10 years before the film, isn't it? So, um, yeah. yeah, well, whatever the anniversary is, they need to get working on it and pull it together. And uh, it seems like you're the man to to write it all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not which, sure about that, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, if people want to find you online, Jeremy, how do they how do they find you? Well, I think the main thing is if you want to read more about this stuff, because I, I'm aware that, I mean, it's it's a little bit difficult to explain this because there's quite quite a lot of stuff to it. But go to jeremy-duns.com and then you'll see a little button that will tell you, uh, you know, where to go in the, the table of contents for all this stuff. So you can you can read it and uh, and make up your own mind about it. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Duns that's that's pretty much it i think you can you can there's a if you want to email me and ask me questions that don't involve me sending you the casino royale material uh, <laughs> my, my, my contact details are on my are on my website as well and is there anything you're working on at the moment that you're keen to to promote to push at the moment not really no i mean i am quite keen basically that people you know take advantage and 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 read the stuff that's on my website because it took me quite a long time to research a lot of this stuff and it took me a fairly long time to get all this up on my website because i had to like source photos and uh, you know check yeah, lots it, of type it looks everything. fantastic it's um I, I think uh, tom sent me it across and I, I was kind of expecting it to be a short article and the depth of information that you've got in there is just phenomenal so if any readers are looking to find out a bit more there is so much on there we're not and we're, i'm not understating that it's it's absolutely enormous and some great photography on there as well so well worth a look yeah it's it's really good and it's well formatted if you just want a bite-sized piece there's there's that option as well yeah i thought it was brilliant we really are Thanks as so always much. we're only we're only ever scratching the surface of these topics but you've really mm-hmm. you've really really dug it deep into it but um absolutely yeah. thank you so much for joining us jeremy um if people want to email the james bond podcast at the a to z podcast how do they get hold of us uh, that's podcast at jamesbond a to z.co.uk and then on social 
at James Bond A to Z on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Well, thank you again so much, uh, Jeremy, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you could leave us a review where you are listening to this podcast, it'd be much appreciated. Maybe if you leave us a review and, and send us a screenshot, you might get a sticker yourself as well. Um, stickers for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so right. much, Tom. James Bond will return. Thanks a lot. All right. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.